You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm joined with Lauren Ayers, who's the Pangolin Project Coordinator with Global Conservation Force. Hey, Lauren. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's a beautiful day in California, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Nice and sunny. <laughs> All of our poor listeners still suffered from winter. Yeah. Um, th- thank you so much for agreeing to come on. When we really started to get interested in Global Conservation Force, you reached out, and then you got us in contact with Mike. So thank you. And we knew we had to have you on. So thanks again for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to make sure uh, Mike's work got highlighted. And, um, of course, get to talk about pangolins is always always my favorite thing. I know. Oh, I can't wait to get into it because they're, they're really in the news lately. But before we get there, I always like to ask our guests, like, kind of just give a, a brief background where you grew up and I guess kind of where your interest in conservation began. Okay. Um, so it's kind of... Two and two. Basically, I grew up in Missoula, Montana, which is a very outdoorsy, um, connected with wildlife type of town. Um, so all throughout school, we were always doing field trips out into the forests and um, near the river. And so just learning about animals and wildlife and ecosystems um, as a kid, it kind of was ingrained in, in who I was. Um, so I grew up there, but then I moved and went to college at Indiana University. Um, and while I was there, I studied biology and psychology and got involved with a big cat organization. And that's kind of where my zookeeping career sparked. Um, but I ended up, uh, also going to graduate school while I was there and, um, pursuing work in, uh, endangered coral. So, um, I know I read that. (laughs) I know I read that. I'm going to jump into that, but okay. So growing up in Montana, you know, I'm a California kid. I grew up near the beach and stuff. Did you see like a lot of wild animals as a kid growing up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, where my house was, where my dad's house was, um, it's at the base of a ski area basically. Um, and so we were surrounded by national forests. So we had animals that were coming through our yard all the time. Um, often we would have bears, 
uh, mountain lions. I wasn't allowed to play outside sometimes during, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> during my childhood because there were mountain lions around, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. wild turkeys, all the fun Montana wildlife. Um, I used to see oh, this awesome. herd of elk on my way into school every day. So pretty neat, neat area to grow up. I bet. I bet. Especially now being an, an, an animal nut like us, you know, it's just, uh, something that just, uh, I can only imagine how awesome that would have been. Except, you know, you're outside and, and seeing something like that come towards you, I'd be a little bit like, eh. anyways, that's, yeah. that's great. That's great. So you, okay. Before we jump into, you know, kind of more of what, what you're doing today, you, you did graduate school and you said you studied corals. Can you kind of talk about what your project was all about? Yeah, so um, fun fact, Indiana University has one of the oldest and largest academic diving and underwater archaeology programs in the country. Wow, wow. Most, most people don't yeah. expect it in Indiana. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so I had actually gotten involved in the scuba program there um, because I wanted to be a marine mammal trainer and you need to be scuba certified. So as an undergrad, I took a scuba class and part of um, their program, they also offered a field project in um, tropical biology was the name of the, the class. And it was in the island of Bonaire. So which is way down near Aruba. Most people have never heard of it, but it's actually, or at least it was one of the most pristine coral reefs in the Caribbean. Um, and when I was there, I just realized that it is a whole other world underwater and coral is absolutely amazing. And most people don't know that it is a animal and not a plant. I know, I know, I know. So um, just being there um, kind of inspired me to continue on with that journey for a brief break in my zookeeping career. Um, mm -hmm. And I ended up teaching uh, scientific diving for the um, academic diving program under a guy named Charles Beaker. Um, who runs that program. Um, he is a world-renowned underwater archaeologist, has done a ton of work in shipwrecks and ancient cultures, uh, specifically in the Florida Keys, but also in the Dominican Republic. And that is where I ended up kind of tailoring my graduate work um, to fit in with the whole scuba underwater archaeology um, realm. Was, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I kind of just amazing. made my own program in a way. But. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So, you know, I know this is you know, podcast more about global conservation force and we're dying to cover corals. We will this year, I promise you. And, and we want to bring in more experts just quickly because you're, you did graduate work in it. How are corals doing, you know, from what you saw? Um, over the time that I had initially started um, diving until um, the end of my graduate program, which was only about four years, there was already a massive decline um, in the species that we were studying. Um, so my degree is focused on marine ecosystem management in areas where there are endangered corals um, on shipwrecks. So we had three different sites in the Dominican Republic that were shipwreck sites or mock shipwrecks, as we called them. So the species were Elkhorn coral, staghorn coral, and um, pillar coral, acroporid species, and dendrodryra. Um, and they aren't commonly found in the Caribbean anymore, um, but we did find them on these shipwreck sites. And part of our work was establishing them as dive sites to kind of increase tourism in the area. And we wanted to see what the impact was on allowing divers now to these sites, what that impact was on these endangered corals that 
um, are fragile and, you know, mm -hmm. potentially um, would be damaged by the by the divers that are coming onto the sites. So um, my project was kind of establishing the monitoring zones um, of those corals, mapping them, taking photos of them, um, and being able to kind of see what the change is over time. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it is right now. I haven't been there in many years, so hopefully yeah. it just recovered, but I'm not sure exactly right now what it looks like. But definitely not doing well um, throughout the entire globe. Coral is uh, really, really struggling. It is. It is. And, it, and, it, and we're definitely going to touch base on coral this year for sure. I just, I'm listening to you and I'm imagining anybody that's done graduate school is so jealous of what you got to do for your thesis. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, go back to my late nights. No, no. Out there <laughs> diving all the time. Oh gosh. Oh, anyways. No, that's okay. So that's fascinating. Now, how <laughs> in the heck did you leap from doing that to jumping into zookeeping? Or being um, a zookeeper. Well, uh, I actually started my zookeeping career when I was 19 while I was still in college. Um, there was a, or still is a big cat rescue center about an hour out of outside of Indianapolis, um, in Indiana. And it's called the exotic feline rescue center. Um, there was a flyer for it in my dorm and I was super excited about it. I was like, I want to go see the big cats. And mm -hmm. so I signed up to go and no one else signed up. And so it didn't happen. So that summer, I ended up going out there and completely falling in love with it and signed up to be an intern right away. Um, and I did an internship that summer as a volunteer. Um, and I just kind of stayed on and they hired me. Um, and so throughout college and grad school, I worked part time as a keeper there um, and took care of probably 200 different individuals over my five years that I was there, wow. mostly tigers. Um, at one point mm -hmm. we had 115 tigers. So all wow. of them were animals that came from previous pet owners um, or roadside zoos, circuses, things like that. Um, so they were all rescued. We didn't breed or sell or buy cats or anything like that. Um, so it kind of sparked definitely an interest in terrestrial animals. Um, but growing up, I'd always wanted to be a marine mammal trainer. So that's where I kind of went the marine way and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of did this little sidetrack where I did a master's degree and did a lot of diving and hung out with coral. And then after I was completed with that, I went um, back into marine mammals. So I worked at the Indianapolis Zoo for about a year and a half um, in different capacities, volunteer intern, um, and worked with walrus and sea lions, seals, polar bears and dolphins. Um, and that was a really, really great experience. It's a super cool zoo, um, very neat collection of marine mammals that, again, you wouldn't find in Indiana. Indiana gets mm -hmm. uh, kind of a bad rap, but they've got a lot of cool stuff going on there. Um, right, right. And I ended up getting hired at SeaWorld San Diego. So um, I moved from Indiana out here to San Diego um, and worked at SeaWorld San Diego. I worked at Shamu Stadium. Um, and then I also worked at Sea Lion and Otter Stadium. And, um, I, you know, I loved working there. I have nothing but great things to say about my time there, but there were full-time positions available at the Safari Park. So I right. went, went for that because San Diego is expensive. Um, yes. <laughs> Quite. and I, uh, ended up starting at, um, the San Diego Zoo Safari Park in 2013 um, and have basically been involved in San Diego Zoo Global since then. 
What a what a wealth of experience. So, all right, I'll put you on the spot. What what species has been your favorite working up into that point? Because um, I, I think we're going to go to pangolins, but we will. <laughs> you That's know, it. working with all those other ones. Yeah, um, I would say probably ringtail lemurs are up there. And anyone who's worked with other lemur species is like, no, ringtails are the like craziest ones. Why would you like them? <laughs> um, but I had a really good relationship with the troop that I worked with. Um, mm-hmm. I got to learn a lot from them and do a lot of training. And it, you know, it was really a learning experience for both of us. So um, I really enjoyed working with those lemurs. Um, but okay, I think that's a surprise. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. I'm- I don't know. They're amazing. Oh, they're, they're spectacular. They're spectacular. Fan favorite. Okay. That's cool though. That's cool. Okay. So now you're working at the zoo. Can you talk a little bit before we, cause I, you know, obviously the meat and potatoes is going to be global conservation force because the work you're doing there is so critical, you know, what you're doing, but you've been on TV, right? You've done some appearances. I have, I have, um, I really like to focus my energy and my, um, I don't know, talents, I guess, towards mm-hmm. inspiring the younger generations to care about wildlife and um, hopefully make changes to protect our planet. So um, I have been on television. I've uh, been on Animal Planet, National Geographic, NBC, PBS, um, all in kind of different capacities as an animal expert, zookeeper, conservation scientist. Um, and it's been a pretty neat uh, journey. Um, with mm-hmm. different uh, different programs that I've been involved in popping up here and there. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's it's kind of a neat way to be able to to reach out and and work in the conservation field um, and inspire others to kind of get dirty and get their hands and and take care of things. Um, oh, it you know, and it's something we've for two years we've talked about the the younger generation and getting them involved and the impact. You know, the story of me, I, I tell the story of when I was, gosh, I think I was like four or five, the first time I went to the San Diego Zoo as a kid and the impacts that made on me as a child, driving me, my passion, you know, throughout my career to work with animals. So it does make a huge difference uh, when you're out there talking to those kids. The one that I, I kind of laughed about and and I hope we maybe can talk about it mm-hmm. is you were on are you smarter than a fifth grader? Is that true? Are you still on there? Or is it just like an appearance? It was an appearance. Um, so every yeah. episode they have a different person. Um, it's, it was a, uh, so just this last year, they, um, put out a kind of resurgence of the show. So everyone remembers, mm-hmm. um, are you smarter than a fifth grader with Jeff Foxworthy? That mm-hmm. was on primetime TV. It was an hour long. Um, and so everyone thought that I met Jeff Foxworthy, but, uh, I actually did not. Um, I was mm-hmm. on the resurgence that was on Nickelodeon. Um, and that was a half hour show. So, um, much quicker paced and right, right. the host is John Cena. So slightly different. Um, but I was on an episode of that and each episode in this kind of iteration of it, they really wanted to feature kind of cool careers that kids could possibly have. And they really focused the show a lot more on the kids, um, and their involvement and, um, kind of targeting it towards kids. So it was kind of a, a pretty good fit for me. And how did you do? Were you smarter than them? Or did they um, whoop you? <laughs> <laughs> so I did pretty well. Um, I have definitely had a few mistakes that I was definitely kicking right, myself right. for, but overall I felt pretty good about the results. Um, I had a ton of fun. 
John yeah. Cena was an amazing person, super friendly, caring, great with kids. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciated his energy and learned a lot from him about how to present stuff in, you know, to a younger audience. Uh, my favorite part of the show, though, was interacting with the kids that were on it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're a, it's a group of kids. They're super talented. They were from all over the United States. Um, and they've got a really, really bright future ahead of them. Some of them are actors and involved in the entertainment industry, but some of them are mm-hmm. just regular kids that, you know, were interested in being on the show. So it was super rewarding to get them excited about animals. And I was able to um, coordinate bringing a sloth on the show. Um, and oh, awesome. that was probably, I don't know, one of the, that was what I was most nervous about, not answering the questions, but I was like very <laughs> concerned that I was going to say something wrong, like say a wrong sloth fact or something. But right, right, um, right, right. luckily the little girl that came up and helped me out with it, um, was kind of sloths were her favorite animal, which is why we had set that up that way. Um, and so she got to spill some of her favorite sloth facts. So it was a, a really neat experience. That's fun. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, I would be scared to go on that show. <laughs> PhD scientist getting whooped by fifth graders. Thank you. It was, uh, yeah, definitely um, a lot tougher. And I, I studied um, for like three yeah. months beforehand because <laughs> I was Jeopardy. not going to go on there and look like an idiot. So hopefully I didn't do that. At least. Oh, gosh, that's great. I got to find that episode. All right. So let's talk about Global Conservation Force. It, it, the interview with Mike was astonishing. Yeah, definitely one of my top interviews that I felt after I, I got off with him, I was just buzzing. I just, it not only is it tragic, you know, in the sense that, you know, it was a very serious interview talking about the poaching crisis in Africa, but I was just so energized listening to him and how he founded that organization. You know, you worked with him down there and I think that's, I don't know, maybe you talk about how you got involved with Global Conservation Force, but I just, what I want to say is I just admired him for the work ethic and the hard work that he's done and now that you're doing, right? So I guess if you can just talk about how you first got involved in this organization. Yeah, absolutely. Mike is a super amazing person, very driven, and he goes after his goals. So um, it's amazing to kind of see his entire journey. I've known him um, for a couple years before Global Conservation Force even kind of was created. Um, and I remember when he told us uh, we were having a pool party at my house with a group of us. Like there's a big close group of us that we're all keepers together and we're good friends. We're having mm-hmm. this pool party and Mike comes to us and he's like, OK, guys, like I, I have to tell you something. I'm going to go to Africa and train as an anti-poaching ranger. Um, and he went and he completely proved us all wrong. He, um, had a lot more in him than any of us ever would have thought a a zookeeper would have. Um, so when he came back, it was, uh, actually I cried before he left because I thought I was never going to see him again. Um, Mm -hmm. but he did of course come back and he decided that, you know, there was a lot more need for help in the anti-poaching world. and, And that's kind of how global conservation force evolved from, um, the original iteration, which was fight with Mike. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't initially get involved with global conservation force. I was doing some stuff with a couple other nonprofits, um, and rhinos and elephants weren't really my area of expertise. Um, but I was planning, um, a honeymoon and, uh, Mike had an event where he had beers that had kind of 
paired up with different animals. So he has like a white rhino IPA that's um, brewed by Pacific Plate Brewery up in LA um, and an mm-hmm. elephant one and then a giraffe one. And I was like, what are you going to do? I'll get to the honeymoon part. Um, what are you yeah, going yeah. <laughs> to you do with the, your next beer? Like what species are you looking at? And he was, you know, talking about a couple different ideas. And at that time I had been working with um, a pangolin and at the zoo and I had said, you know, you really should do pangolins because they really need it. And he was like, you know, that was actually on my radar. So we kind of started talking more about pangolins. Um, and then fast forward a couple months and I'm planning my honeymoon. And mm. I really wanted to go somewhere uh, where there was pangolins. So um, I had just mentioned in passing to Mike um, about how I was interested in going to a place called Save Vietnam's Wildlife. And they have pangolins. And that's really where I wanted to go. If I'm going on this big honeymoon trip, I really want to go somewhere where, you know, I can be around animals that I, I care a lot about. Um, and Mike had actually met the director, Ty, um, at a conference uh, a couple months before that. And he said, well, let's get you guys in touch because we've been talking about supporting them. Um, and so then the first half of my honeymoon turned into a project for Global Conservation Force. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then that <laughs> developed my position as uh, the Pangolin Project Coordinator. So um, luckily, my husband is a zookeeper, so he was 100% okay. on board with half the honeymoon Good. being a uh, <laughs> kind of working trip. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got involved is just being a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, making contacts and talking and, and being social. So, you know, it's like we, we get, we get asked all the time, how do you get involved with conservation? And, you know, we talk about education, but I think something we we haven't really talked about either is networking at conferences like that. So that, that's, that's a great point uh, to raise and, and I guess further expand upon, which Angie and I will do for sure. So you are the Pangolin Project Coordinator. I, I guess the first question is, and, and people that didn't listen to our Pangolin podcast a long one ago, probably 100 episodes ago, why pangolins? Um, so I will admit that I was not someone that loved pangolins going into uh, a career as a zookeeper. I didn't even know what they were back when I started as a right, zookeeper. Right. Um, but in my um, current position as an outreach uh, an ambassador keeper, I had the chance um, to work with a white-bellied tree pangolin. And at the time, he was the only one under human care in a zoo um, in basically the entire Western Hemisphere. Um, now, there are a lot more um, in zoos currently, but at the time, he was the only one. Um, and it was kind of a weird connection that I had with this animal. Um, I've worked with hundreds of different animals over my career. And hands down, he was my favorite. I had almost like a dog and owner connection with him where we just really kind of connected on a different level. Um, and it was kind of a joke at work because everyone called him my boyfriend um, because <laughs> he would leave his keeper that um, had been taking care of him for nearly 10 years. He would you know, be holding him and he would leave his keeper to hop onto me and he just wanted to hang out with me. That's funny. Um, which... Yeah. I, I've never had an animal do that before. So I didn't mm-hmm. know why mm-hmm. he picked me and why I was so lucky, but, um, I had this bond and, um, I wanted to do more for pangolins because we would do daily pangolin talks and take him out. So guests at the zoo could see him. Um, and we could, you know, explain the plight of pangolins and there would be like 
four people, 10 people, maybe on a busy day that would show up to the pangolin talk, even though it was advertised on the map and everything, because nobody knew what a pangolin was. And there were so many times that they were like, ew, it's a snake or look at that armadillo or it's a Uh sloth. I don't know. People had no idea what it was. Um, and it was really sad to me that, that no one knew this amazing animal that I had this amazing connection with. People didn't even know that it existed. Um, and during my time from starting in that position, starting to work with him until the end of his life, um, I saw an amazing increase in knowledge and awareness of pangolins, primarily with youth. Um, there was a television show, um, called Wild Kratts, which you might be familiar mm-hmm. with. Yep. I'm not sure yep. if I. Yep. Yep. Very popular. Yes. Uh, so, um, they did an episode on pangolins and they actually in the very beginning had like a little live segment where they featured our pangolin. Um, and after that episode aired, uh, even though it didn't really have much to do with our pangolin in particular, but we would have kids that were right up front, ready to go for the talk and chatting and telling us all they know about pangolins. And it was a very stark difference from a week before when that episode didn't exist. And it, kind of sparked this um, idea that, hey, we can reach kids in in ways that, you know, maybe adults, we've been trying to reach them and it's not clicking with them. But a no. show like that gets these kids excited about animals um, and gets them caring about them. I mean, months and months and months after he passed away, we still were having people ask where he was. And we had, you know, kids mm-hmm. that came from the other side of the country to see him. Um, all the time. And unfortunately, even after he passed away. Um, so that was kind of sad, but usually uh, the keepers would talk to them and tell them all the cool stuff about pangolins and um, why they're so important. And so, you know, usually we're able to kind of turn around the sadness a bit, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, see, it's amazing how you can impact children at such an early age with, you know, educational television or like a podcast or you know, even books. So that's, that's crazy. Wildcrats. Yeah. My two boys, they love wildcrats and, you know, they're always talking about different animals that we saw on there. So that's amazing. So how, you know, I guess people just aren't aware that pangolins are the number one trafficked animal in the world. And, you know, like I said, we did it, oh, we covered them well over a year and a half ago. So how are they doing today? So pangolins um, as a whole are not doing super great. It's not much better than it was a year and a half ago. Um, the Chinese, Philippine, and Sunda pangolin species are all critically endangered. Um, the other five species are either endangered or vulnerable, um, but all populations are decreasing. So the three um, species that are critically endangered are all from Asia. Um, and a large reason is because a lot of the demand started in Asia. But in the amount of time that they've been monitoring them, the trade has actually um, switched and decreased in, from Asian pangolin species to increase in African pangolin species. Um, in 2016, there was a study that was kind of done comparing the two over the last 15 years. And it's probably because the Asian species are harder to find. So therefore... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're not going to be traded as often. Whereas the African species up until, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, were not necessarily being touched for the trade. Um, so there haven't been a lot of 
population studies, like I can't tell you that there are, you know, X number of, it's all estimates that are out there. Um, but it is uh, pretty clear that the populations are decreasing. Right. They're crashing. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific when we covered them and, you know, just, it hasn't stopped. It hasn't abated until now, which we're going to get to here with the coronavirus and stuff. But, you know, I remember reading back the African pangolins, they're being smuggled and maybe this is a truth or fiction. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Are they said they were smuggling them along the routes that they're smuggling ivory out, right? Yep. Absolutely. So it's the, um, kind of same, same, Trafficking routes, uh, that ivory, rhino horn, um, are all going through. Um, a mm-hmm. myth is that all pangolins, all of them are being trafficked to China. Um, that's a big myth. Uh, they're not all going to China. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, um, there are several countries that they're going to. Um, China and Vietnam are the ones that people mostly talk about because they kind of have a double edged sword. Pangolins are found in the wild there. So pangolins are being consumed there as well as they are found there. So they're going to be in the media for not only being consumed, but also confiscations of them and ones that are rescued in those areas, things like that. Yeah, I was just going to ask, are they, are they also being found, okay, outside of Asia? Like, are they going to European markets or, say, North America? Yes, absolutely. So um, okay. China and Vietnam are big, but the third one that's on the list of big is the United States. Um, and a lot of Mm. people blame, you know, oh, it's only Asia that's doing it. And it's not, it really isn't. There's, um, I don't even know how many countries are on the list of proven confiscations, let alone Mm -hmm. the ones that haven't been confiscated. Um, France is up there, obviously, um, the United States and, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Togo, all of these are involved in um, either trafficking of them, being kind of an intermediary, taking them from the wild, or also consuming them and being the end. So the United States is one of those places that they're ending up here. Um, it's the third most frequent destination of the pangolin trafficking. So we can't necessarily say oh, as okay. U.S. citizens, oh, it's all of them, because it's happening right mm-hmm, here, too. Mm-hmm. But, okay, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. The, they're protected under CITES, right? So is it, it's a black market here. It's not legally they're being imported. Correct. Correct. It is a black market. Yeah. Um, in 2016, uh, they were all eight species of pangolins were granted CITES one protection, which essentially meant that they, um, were prevented from being traded, obviously in any legal way. Um, prior to that, there was some legal trade of the African pangolins. Um, now that, is um, in a way, depending on who you talk to, it actually can be kind of a controversial subject because it does block um, some XC2 efforts in conservation uh, with pangolins. Um, so zoos importing them. That's why, right. You don't see a lot of them at zoos, right? I mean, there's hardly any, I think. Oof. I've never seen a pangolin and I've visited quite a few zoos. Yeah. Few dozen, um, think, so. The main, I mean, the main reason why they haven't been in zoos frequently is just because of, um, a diet that, you know, is in an animal that's under that's human true. care. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to mm-hmm. replicate the diet of a pangolin. Um, the one that I worked with, uh, lived for 10 years under human care. And at that time, the average, uh, amount of time that they survived, um, prior to that was six months to a year. So it, Definitely, um, took a lot of work for those institutions to develop a diet, 
um, that they would eat a replica diet of what they would eat in the wild. Um, there's also been breeding in the zoos that have them now. So there's been an increase in the pangolins that we have um, under human care here in the United States. Um, but by having that CITES protection, um, hopefully it's preventing any sort of um, trafficking and killing them. But it also, you know, in, in some people's opinion, is going to block its XC2 efforts because now we have a limited gene pool that we can breed from. Mm-hmm. So it, right, know, right. it's right, double-edged yeah. sword again. It is. It is. It is. And it just, you know, we had an interview with Bill Ziegler when we did the pangolin episode way back when from Brookfield yep. Zoo. And I think I remember that them talking about the diets. I, I remember him mentioning something like that, but yeah, that's good because, you know, we need the, the, the lifeboat, the ark for them, you know, since the wild is, is so dire for them. It's just, uh. all right. So I think we laid out what's going on with penguins. Yes. It's not good. No. And it, it, it's still, you know, in the, at least they're in the news today. Again, we'll get to that in a minute. So getting with your work with Global Conservation Force, as the Pangolin Project Coordinator, I guess you can talk more about exactly what you're doing yeah. to help stem the tide. Yeah, absolutely. So um, creating educational and wildlife demand reduction content for um, not only people here in the United States, but also people in the areas where consumption as well as poaching is an issue. So a lot in Africa. Um, we've done some projects in Asia. We just recently expanded to Asia a couple of years ago. Um, so we haven't established a ton of different places there, but it's, uh, it's coming up. Um, we also are acting as kind of a liaison for our pangolin partnerships. So, um, some of them are unable to raise money in their country from U.S. funds. So uh, we do support a lot of them financially um, by hosting Pangolin Project fundraisers. Like the other day, we just on Peng- World Pangolin Day, we hosted a Disney trivia event. Um, and all of that money is going to our dedicated Pangolin Projects um, out in South Africa. So, um, of course, we do have field work that we do with and for Pangolin um, projects that we're involved in. In the past, um, we had supported and worked with Save Vietnam's Wildlife, um, which I kind of touched on a little bit ago, um, and supported them with mainly just financial donations. Um, I did get to go out there with another one of our board members, um, and we visited the sanctuary, um, did some help with their uh, husbandry of their animals. Um, I worked with their education program. And um, one project we did was we kind of developed this trading card system um, or game, I guess, uh, with mm-hmm. um, with Save Vietnam's Wildlife's education staff. Um, and the idea with the trading cards was we were going to put uh, pictures of the animals, um, a little bit about them, a little bit about how kids could help them and why they're important. And Save Vietnam's Wildlife staff picked eight species that they felt like were the um, biggest, I don't know, mo- most endangered or the, the ones that are going to need the most help. Um, and, mm-hmm. of course, pangolins were one of them. And they wanted native species to Vietnam. So um, that's really what we focused on. And we made these cards in conjunction with them. Um, I got real good at Adobe Illustrator. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we printed them up. And so we were able to bring those out and each of those cards has a different species so the kids could kind of trade them around or if they came to visit um, the Save Vietnam's Wildlife uh, Education Center, they could get another card and then, you know, collect all of them. 
Um, and it really kind of in, uh, inspired the kids that I was able to see in my short time there, um, just getting them excited about different animals that, you know, they might not have even heard mm -hmm. of, or maybe they'd heard of them in, in kind of a poaching aspect and, you know, gave them a different perspective of it. So that was kind of a neat right. project we did. Yeah, I was, oh, I was amazed when he said you guys were involved in Asia and education and, and the people you're working with, you know, to try to drive down the demand. And, you know, we kind of talked about it where maybe the old generation, you're not going to get through to them. And I think you've even alluded to that in this interview, but the young generation, the, the, the up and coming, the hip, the ones that are connected on social media, I think that's the generation that we can target with education and change minds, right? Is that yeah, kind of, am I reading that absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, in Vietnam in particular, um, a huge, in, and in pangolins specifically, um, a huge part of the pangolin consumption um, is in lactating mothers. So historically, um, they would use pangolin scale um, to help them with milk production. And of course, pangolin scales made out of keratin. It's the same thing as our fingernails. It does not have any scientifically proven value or does not help with that. Um, however, mm -mm. if you have um, a baby and you're, I, I think anyone who's a parent or most um, pet parents maybe can uh, kind of relate with this, but right, if you right, have a right. baby, you want to take care of it and you want it to, you know, grow and be healthy. And if you're having trouble producing milk, and your mom says, oh, hey, I, you know, I took this certain pill or certain tea or whatever, um, and it helped me produce more milk. And that's why you're healthy. Then you think, oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. And then you start to think about it. And your aunt mm -hmm. also did it and your grandma and your great grandma. And it goes all the way back historically. So why would you risk your baby's life and not do this? You know, it has no harm right. to you. Why? So breaking into that market is difficult because, you know, you have a, a cultural um, and historical background that has said that this is what you do to be healthy, to take care of your child. Um, but as Western ideas are kind of moving more into um, different areas and vice versa, um, especially with the, the advent of social media, there has been um, more of a shift that we've seen in the, you know, generation X and younger um, where they are seeing, oh, it's not scientifically proven to do this, or this is a different medication that's actually going to help with this problem. Um, so it's, it, they're a good market per se, not, not the best word, but um, a good demographic. Uh, that's what I want to say. Right. <laughs> a good demographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, um, people to target because they are a little more open to newer ideas um, and, you know, seeing things that, you know, maybe didn't actually work in the past, but were kind of more of a myth. Um, and yeah, so we've been working not only with the Save Vietnam's Wildlife folks, um, but our biggest project right now is with an organization called Wild Hand. Um, and they're again, an, another wildlife demand reduction um, education program in Hanoi, Vietnam. Um, so mm -hmm. I've been involved in more stuff in Vietnam, which is why I'm kind of talking more about that. But like I said, not all of the problem is there. Um, but no, but it's so sorry. No, I didn't mean to cut in, but it just, it's a very, very interesting perspective. Like what's going on, you know, cause Mike gave us a good perspective on what's going on, on the ground in Africa. But if you can give us, keep giving us perspective, what's going on in these markets. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. And I didn't even know the thing about, um, you know, really it being used for lactating mothers, penguin scale. 
I had absolutely no idea. Mm -hmm. And honestly, a lot of the people that use it probably don't even know that it comes from an animal. I mean, they are going to their local, you know, pharmacy or Chinese medicine shop. They're buying a bottle or a container of powder um, and they're going home and using it. They might not even know that it comes from an animal. Um, and breaking into that kind of cultural barrier is, is very difficult, especially for Westerners to come in. Um, so we have been trying to work with locals um, that are involved in conservation. And how do we support the work that you are doing? Because, you know, a blonde person comes in and tells you, hey, what you're doing is right. exactly the wrong thing. You're going to be like, no, this is this is how I work, live my life. Um, but by having someone that's a, a peer, a local that understands your beliefs and your cultures um, is going to be probably a lot more productive in terms of changing people's minds about how they use these products and how animals are, um, you know, seen. So, yeah, it, it, that's amazing. That's, that's, I know, no, it's, it's amazing. It's just, uh, you know, from their perspective, uh, I guess, you know, if we talk about the, the supply chain, how it gets to them, do you know how they're catching these pangolins in Africa? Are they using snares? Are these the, the, the typical thing? Are they just walking through at night with flashlights and finding them and just grabbing them and putting them in a sack? Essentially both. And then, <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it, especially in Vietnam, a lot of the ones that we saw at Save Vietnam's Wildlife, their rescue center had tons of snare wounds. They're snaring them, um, mm -hmm. whether intentionally or not intentionally. Um, but, Pangolins, their biggest defense is to roll up in a ball and hope for the best. And um, when you are a small mammal that just rolls in a ball and hopes for the best and someone is looking for you, that is a very easy target to just pick up and carry away. So um, mm -hmm. they are nocturnal by nature, most species, um, but it's uh, pretty easy to kind of follow them. And I've heard stories of people that actually know that the pangolin scent, like hunters, um, that know the scent of pangolins. And so they can kind of just walk through the forest and say, oh, I, I think that there's a pangolin around here. Um, I know that they're very stinky from taking care of them. Yeah. So I can understand <laughs> yes. that whether I could identify that scent in the forest. I'm not really sure. Um, but right, uh, right. yeah, it's pretty easy for them to be poached. It's not like a rhino that's enormous, um, you know, or an elephant that is going to fight back. So um, they're a lot easier for, for poachers to get a hold of. And so are, are some of your projects involved on the ground in Africa or are you looking more at the, the end, the end of the um, chain? Kind of both. The end of the because, supply chain. You okay. know, really, um, it's not just a single, you know, one dimensional problem. It's no, very no, no, multifaceted. No, no, no. There's lots of different issues that are going into it. So, um, we've recently, um, started a, uh, a program with our canines. Um, we, I had, uh, I'm, Mike talked a little bit about it, but um, we have some Belgian Malinois that are um, global conservation forces, and we're working with uh, another organization called Kylo 9 Kennels that's in South Africa, and they're helping us train up those canines. And, okay, well, what does, you know, a police dog have to do with penguins? Well, um, not only do you have the Mike side, the criminal apprehension and all of that, but you also have the detection ability in, um, in dogs. So... Um, these dogs can be trained to identify pangolin scale or pangolin meat. Mm -hmm. um, and so training those dogs, funding that program, we actually are sending uh, one of our um, uh, 
project coordinator. She's the canine project coordinator over there um, in a couple weeks, and she's spending months in Africa, um, in South Africa, helping with the canine prog- program. And we're hoping to be able to train them to identify pangolin scales. So that way we can kind of stop the um, the the trade in a way. Um, like mm-hmm. Mike said, mm-hmm. as soon as they see a dog, they know that they're not going to get away with stuff. So having those dogs might right. help protect the pangolins just out of fear that people aren't going to want to, you know, get caught with pangolin scales because of the dogs. Right. And it's, the, and so they catch them and then they'll kill them and just take the scales. And then that's what they're shipping to say Asia or the United States. In, um, in the trafficking, yes and no. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the scales. It's also okay. the meat as well. Um, mm-hmm. and body parts. Um, so there's also a bushmeat trade for them. Um, and there is some medicinal use in Africa as well. So, um, not all of them are getting shipped out, but you have local hunters, um, that are paid by higher up, um, kind of, they'd be like a drug lord, but they're like a trafficking mm-hmm. lord, essentially. Um, criminal organization yeah, yeah that yeah. is um will come into the city and or the town and they'll say okay anyone who goes out and catches one of these will give you you know twenty dollars say um and so those local hunters are like ah you know no i don't care about this animal like i need twenty dollars to feed my family so they'll go out and they'll pick one up and they'll hand it off and sell it to this um person that then goes and takes that animal to an area where they're collecting a bunch of them, um, say a staging area. Uh, Nigeria has had a lot in the media recently as kind of a staging area. There's been a lot of confiscations there. Um, and so then they will, you know, scale them um, or descale them. I don't really know what the term would yeah. be. Um, yeah. yeah. And get a, a large number of them to ship over um, to the areas that they're going to be consumed or used. Um, and they're making a lot more money than this, you know, hunter. So it's not necessarily the people that are going out and getting them that are the bad people. Um, it's kind of more of this organized crime syndicate that's right in the middle, um, which is where Mike kind of his, his side of the anti-poaching stuff handles, um, all of that. Uh, that's dangerous. So I stay away from that. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I I like the education side. Right. And then on the, on the, the, the hind end. So then you go to Asia and you're just working in Vietnam right now. Are there other countries? Um, that you're involved we've had in? projects in Indonesia. Basically right now we're kind of just waiting on funding, um, to be able to kind of expand that project. Um, and Indonesia is not only, um, part of the, the trade route, um, but they're, are pangolins that are found in Indonesia as well. Um, so being able to kind of protect the waters there, stop trade from coming through there, make, basically make it almost um, like a barrier uh, of protection for pangolins right there because tons of them are coming through on ships um, through Indonesia. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get some funding to kind of start this uh, marine protection unit project um, because even though it's marine, um, it's stopping the uh, the ships from coming through that have all of the illegal substances. Yeah, yes. items. Yeah, all the animals and stuff. So what are, you know, outside of pangolins, and I know we talked to Mike a lot about kind of the anti-rhino stuff, what are some of the other projects 
that you might be involved with or global conservation forces involved with? Or I guess as species. Yeah, yeah. So we have, um, key species that we focus on. Um, obviously rhinoceros are the first and kind of, um, most uh, keystone species that we started mm-hmm. with. Um, but we have also expanded into giraffe, elephant, um, pangolin, of course, and, uh, African wild dogs or painted dogs. Um, those are our five, what we call key species. Um, so we have worked, um, in the painted dogs recently. We did some relocations, uh, with conservation organizations in South Africa to help move those painted dogs. They're having a lot of pressures on them, um, from human wildlife conflict, uh, with elephants. We've done translocations of elephants, um, giraffe. We've worked with giraffe conservation foundation. Um, Julian Fennessy is a fantastic individual. Um, if you have not <laughs> met him or had a chance to interview him, I highly recommend it. He's very fun. Um, and he can tell you put on the list all there. about giraffes. Um, so basically our kind of bigger species, um, our charismatic species are in a way protecting all the smaller ones like the pangolins. Um, it was at the time when we decided the pangolins were going to be a keystone species, they weren't well known. Um, and they were kind of a, a weird, obscure keystone species. We also were considering vultures. Um, and vultures, people don't, unfortunately, really not that many people care about them. Um, but by being able to right. protect rhinos and elephants and things that, you know, people recognize and people care about, we're in turn protecting those smaller animals like the vultures and the pangolins. And luckily, when we picked pangolins, um, they uh, weren't well known, but have started to become more well known. So we are seeing a lot of people that are finding out about us because of our work um, with protecting pangolins. No, it's it's critical. I mean, it's critical stuff. The 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 work you guys are doing is just uh, it's just amazing. It's amazing, amazing stuff, Lauren. It's just wow. I yeah, it's it's amazing. So in the news, okay, recently in in the past month or actually a couple months, you know, this coronavirus, uh, Wuhan, China, is where it's coming from. Um, I did a little digging this weekend. It's not a hundred percent confirmed, but they believe that this came from the wildlife markets in China. Uh, scientists in China have uh, the genome of this virus is like 99% similar to the coronavirus that pangolins carry. So they're assuming that it jumped from pangolins to humans. And, you know, so have you guys heard about that? It, 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 I guess what's global conservation force What's your take on that, I guess, and, and your take on that, hearing that news? Yeah, so um, definitely I've heard about it. It was all over my social media, like, yay, it's the Pangolin Revenge. Um, and right. <laughs> I think the biggest, like, I, I can go on and on and on. If you search for mm-hmm. coronavirus and pangolin on Google, you're going to get over 5 million results of basically just news reports and op-eds. Right. And all of the the association between the DNA of the coronavirus that was found in a pangolin and the DNA that was found to be, you know, in the human's coronavirus, it's 99% similar. But all of that is based on a single test that was done on one specimen at one university. And that individual, that specimen wasn't even found in the market the outbreak has been traced to, from what I've heard. Um, you know, I, I'm not right. there, okay. but from some of my, mm-hmm. I've been kind of investigating this as well. Um, some of my pangolin 
connections uh, have told me that, you know, that animal wasn't even in that market. However, right, that's right. not saying that pangolins aren't involved, um, but it hasn't been peer reviewed. So it should be taken in a bit with a grain of salt. There might be an association. It's a very loose association. So um, in the scientific world, you know, you're not going to say that it's directly correlated unless you have a large sample size, unless you have been able to go through all of the steps of a study to prove it. Um, it has been said now more recently that scientists are coming out and saying that penguins are likely an intermediate host of this virus that originated in a different species, such as maybe bats. Bats don't need the bad press. Right. Yep. <laughs> they don't need the bad press. Bats right. need all yep. the help too. Nope, nope. Um, Yep. But the issue may just lie within the wet markets themselves, which is where the meat, um, animals, fish, all these kind of perishables per se, um, are sold out in the open, butchered on site. Um, and a lot of times they have these exotic and wild animals coming in, um, either alive or dead, and they have those diseases that spread. Um, so there's, you know, kind of an issue with the wet markets and, this is even a debatable issue if it is an issue. So <laughs> all of this is very double-edged mm -hmm, sword mm -hmm. because wet markets are very traditional and they have a cultural history in China. So, you know, a lot of the older generations go there for their daily social um, interactions and it's their tradition. So we can't say let's ban all the wet markets because we, right. you know, that's not, not fair to other people's cultures. Um, but what we know is that, you know, SARS was originated in a wet market. Avian flu was originated in a wet market. Um, so maybe a better regulation of what's coming in. And even then, it still is kind of um, not necessarily going to eliminate any sort of viral outbreaks in the future. So what you're saying is even if they were like sanitary and these, these, say these wet markets or whatever, and it's not just a China problem, like you said earlier, Correct. right? Um, it's important to note that the uh, 2009 outbreak of swine flu um, was traced back to have originated in a pig farm um, like 10 years earlier uh, that had diseased pigs. And that was here in the United States. Um, so it's widely considered amongst Americans that the United States has high standards for meat production and it's very sanitary, but it still happened. So really, if mm -hmm. we wanted to be practical about not spreading any disease um, through markets such as wet markets or um, any meat, you just have to stop eating meat completely, um, which I don't think is necessarily right. something that the entire globe is going to do. Um, so it's targeting the pangolins, targeting the wet markets is not necessarily the, the thing we want to do. We don't want to just find something to blame and blame it because we can, we want to maybe see what are some other alternatives to solving this issue. I will say it, it is, I guess, from my perspective, and it, it beautifully put as far as science, yeah, one study, one specimen never makes it a truth, but it's interesting. And at least maybe it would put a damper on demand of pangolins, at least, you know, that's, that's some good news that would come out of that story. Well, but, it's hard to tell. And that I, I'm very good at telling, being devil's advocate and telling both sides. Um, it's hard to tell because yeah, possibly pangolins will, people will fear eating the meat because it's diseased. But then again, there are some pangolin conservationists that are concerned that there might be more harm done to pangolins due to mm, retaliation. That's true. Um, that's true. we've seen animals <laughs> killed in mass numbers even after one individual causes a human death, such as sharks, 
getting killed in mass after a swimmer dies or even the rattlesnake roundups that happen here in the United States. I, I myself, as well as some other conservationists, do, you know, kind of fear that it's a possible threat to the pangolins, even though a lot of people say, oh, yeah, it's the, you know, they're going to reduce the demand. We got to think about it on, on other ways, maybe not necessarily the same way we would consider it. That's true. I could see a farmer out there like, oh, it's a pangolin, shoot it, you know, because exactly. it's disease. I'm afraid yeah. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. It's the conservation so complex. Oh, it is. It's should... hard. It's very hard. It is. It is. It's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, but education, I believe with education, things can change. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I'm getting from, from listening to you is the education component is, is big. And, you know, hats off to you. I just, I guess the final question about penguins before we wrap all this up is just what's their future look like from, from your shoes, from what you see, you're very well educated about this species. Where are we heading with them? Um, well, if we continue at the rates that we are, um, they're heading very quickly towards extinction. Um, another 10 years of the current poaching rates of the Chinese and Malayan pangolins, which are the critically endangered ones, that will wipe out the entire population. So the amount that those ones are getting poached, which if you remember, I did say that they are less um, poached right now than the African ones. So 10 years of poaching them the same way, we're not going to have those two species. Um there's an estimate that one pangolin is poached from Africa every 40 minutes. Um, I've seen other estimates that in total, there is uh, 300 pangolins killed a day. Um, you know, they've been, it's been known that they've needed greater protection for a long time and demand reduction. Um, during some of my late night investigations down the rabbit hole of the internet, um, I found a nature, um, a journal called Nature. Um, and in 1938, it was actually published that the Asian species needed greater protection. In 1938. So this has been an ongoing problem for a while. Um, significant reductions have happened in other animal product usage, such as shark fins and ivory, through education. Um, Wild Aid is an organization that does a lot with demand reduction and prevention of trafficking and they published a, st- a study that they did with an estimated 80% drop in the consumption of shark fin soup in China. Um, and possibly because the younger generations are no longer interested in the traditional medicines and practices um, because of greater knowledge. Wild Aid does a really good job of marketing to benefit the wildlife by using celebrities and ad campaigns to hopefully influence those potential buyers. Um, so, it, you know, education can definitely make a difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. they need a better, better PR team. Penguins need a better PR yes. team. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, For I sure. think we should have like cartoons featuring them as cute and smart, important animals and get people to really care about them because people love pink, but people love pandas. Uh, but they don't necessarily love penguins yet. Uh, well, so they're adorable. To spread that. Yes. They are super adorable. They are super adorable and they definitely deserve all the protection in the world. I just, uh, it, it, it's an uphill fight. It's definitely, they still have an uphill fight, but the work you're doing, I know is making a difference and greater exposure is, is making a difference for them. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing our part. Uh, Lauren, you know, we're definitely over an hour. I just, a couple more questions. You know, as as a species, and and you've seen it, you've been on the ground in Vietnam. 
uh, you're, you're keeping tabs on this, this species, but as a species homo sapiens, do you think we have a moral obligation to save endangered species like the pangolin? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think we need to really do what we can to stop the endangered species from going extinct. However, extinction is natural. There's an ebb and flow to life on earth. And it's, you know, if you study natural history, geology, it's very evident that that exists. Um, a lot of people talk about the sixth mass extinction that we're in right now. Um, and each of the other five mass extinctions wiped out entire families of plants and animals and changed the entire course of life. Um, so why would this one be any different? And, and why would we, the biggest consumers of the resources on the planets, be immune to the effects of that mass extinction? So in moral obligation, yeah, absolutely. So even if you don't care about animals and you care about people more than animals, it's going to affect us one way or another. And if you want people to be around, we definitely have to stop it because Earth exists in a really, really delicate balance and throwing it off by species that go extinct, it'll affect us down the line for sure. Maybe not tomorrow or next year, but it'll come if we don't do something. And um, unfortunately, it probably won't be too pretty for humans. No, no. Or the environment. I mean, desertification, no, mass die off of plants and, and all these species. Yeah, it's going to have a huge impact. It's uh all right. Well, conservation optimism. We're gonna yes, we're gonna turn sorry. this around, right? No, I'm very, no, it's I'm very good at the doom and gloom. It's part of working with penguins, I guess. <laughs> well, it's so easy to talk about it because it's so you know we, we live and breathe it every day, and and we see it and read the reports, and it's it's disheartening at times. But there are people like you out there, and Mike, and like you said, some of the the Wild Hand, Save Vietnam Wildlife. There are organizations out there fighting tooth and nail for these species. So that's very heartening. So we are going to turn this around. I guess my final question is, how do our listeners help? How can they support you in what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, I think something that's really important is becoming involved in conservation yourself. And that can be super simple, like planting a pollinator garden to help honeybees, um, all the way up to quitting your job and dedicating your life to a species like Lots of field conservationists have done, moved <laughs> to Africa and um, just become immersed in it. Um, education awareness, we touched on that a lot. Um, but you can spread the word. You can share this podcast with friends, um, post articles about wildlife, make your own videos, um, and keep informed by following organizations like GCF or Global Conservation Force. Um Pangolin Conservation is another organization that um, does a lot of work with XC2 pangolins, say Vietnam Wildlife, IUCN Pangolin Specialist Group, um, and, uh, of course, financial support um, of the conservation organizations definitely goes a long way. Um, so you can consider donating to Global Conservation Force. Our website's pretty simple, globalconservationforce.org. Um, San Diego Zoo's Global Wildlife Conservancy does a lot of great work. And their website also is easy and extinction.org. Um, and Save Vietnam's Wildlife now takes donations through their website as well, which is just svw.vn. Um, so a couple different ways. Um, I constantly am posting stuff on my own social media. Um, people can find out about stuff that way too. Great. No, I, I will post all those links on the show notes. And so people can go and learn more about what you're doing and also what's going on in Vietnam and around the world. But uh, 
I mean, Lauren, I, we could talk to hours. <laughs> Maybe, you know, we do coral. We'll bring you back. You know, we'll All get right. you guys involved in, in protecting the world's corals. But thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you do. Like, really, I don't, I don't think we tell you enough or you don't hear it enough. Like, thank you. Thank you for fighting and having the energy outside of your normal nine to five job to, to do this. Cause you do this in your spare time, right? Yes. Yes. This is all volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Um, so yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for doing a podcast and being able to spread the word and have a platform for us to be able to, you know, let people know about all this stuff. And thank you to the listeners for listening to this whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gloom. But uh, it's- Hopefully we have some out. optimism. Yes. We get, we give some optimism at the end, yes. you know, smile. It's going to be okay. It's going to yes. be okay. We we're going to reverse it. these trends. We're going to, we're going to, we're all coming together. So this is the decade, but Lauren, thank you so much. It was a pleasure and take care. Absolutely. Thank you so much.